the Vietnam War and the push for US involvement was a result of the Gulf of Tonkin incident. A lie. The Iraq War famously is a result of lies. Wars in Somalia are a result of lies. The Second World War and the German invasion of Poland was a result of carefully constructed lies. That is war by media. Let us ask ourselves of the complicit media, which is the majority of the mainstream press, what is the average death count attributed to each journalist? That was uh, Julian Assange at the very top at an anti-war rally in London in 2010, followed by our theme music, which is from The Third Man, uh, The Zither uh, by Anton Karras. By the way, I'm Randy Credico, Randy Credico live on the fly here on the Progressive Radio Network uh, with a very special edition of Assange Countdown to Freedom. Uh, I've got a great guest on today, and that's why this is so special. And uh, it is Professor Nils Melzer, who has an incredible uh, resume here. Let me just read some of it. Uh, Professor Nils Melzer is the Human Rights Chair of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights. He is also Professor of International Law at the University of Glasgow. On November 1st, 2016, Melzer took up the function of UN Special Rapporteur on Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman, or Degrading Treatment or Punishment. Professor Melzer has served for 12 years with the International Committee of the Red Cross as legal advisor, delegate, and deputy head of the delegation in various zones of conflict and violence. He has authored award-winning and widely translated books, including Targeted Killing in International Law and Interpretive Guidance on the Notion of Direct Participation in Hostilities. I got through that. Okay, uh, his latest book, and that's the focus today, is The Case of Julian Assange, A Story of Persecution. Okay, it's coming out in English. It's a big bestseller in Germany. And now that it's been translated, we'll be able to get it. And I suggest that you do. All right. He's also a great piano player. And we're going to showcase some of his work today, including this original piece by Professor Melzer. And we'll be right back with him.
Critical, Randy Critical, live on the fly here on Progressive Radio Network, PRN.FM. And that music that you just heard was, as I said, uh, is by a little piece by Nils Melzer. Nils, I got to tell you something. You play a mean piano. How long have you been playing the piano? Well, I started about 40 years ago, and then I stopped about 30 years ago. And I started again last year. So there was a long break where I didn't play the piano. When you were studying law, were you also studying music? You were in college? That is actually, that is, no, that is actually true. Yes, when I was a, a law student, that's when I was also studying the piano quite intensively at the, at, the, at the musical university. But after that, when I left with the ICRC to war areas, I couldn't carry a piano along. I see. Well, it really, uh, it really is great. Uh, I've heard a lot of your music, and I'm really impressed. I'm impressed with everything that you do. Um, and so we had you on uh, a few months back when your book, uh, The Trial of Julian Assange, uh, first came out and uh, was an instant bestseller in Germany. Uh, and now you've translated it into English. Did you do that on your own? Yes, I did it myself, yes. I thought I thought it's my working language is English and it, the precision is extremely important in this in this book. So I thought I'd do it myself. Yeah, it, I, I, I guess it's not easy to translate from uh, German into English, right? <laughs> no, you just you just have to take one German sentence. You have to make three English sentences out of it. <laughs> never, I'm, if I'm going to study another language, it's not going to be German. It might take me a couple of years just to get uh, Dankeschön. Uh, so um, anyway, welcome back. Um, and so now that it's in English, uh, the book, uh, The Trial of Julian Assange, it's coming out, uh, I know, in February, but you can get it. You can pre-order it uh, very soon. When, when, when's the uh, target date uh, pre-order uh, this book that's now in English. In fact, I, I think with some some sites you can already pre-order it, and some it doesn't work yet. So I guess it's a question of a couple of days or weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, I can't wait to read the whole thing because I read the introduction a dozen times, and I'm biting at the bit to read the rest of it. You know, uh, it's called the trial of Julian Assange, and you wrote this uh, way back. I think this book will have a uh, great impact. And I'm sure it already has. Uh, Germany seems to be one of the few places where uh, a great deal of their legislature actually supports Julian Assange. You've been there. You've spoken uh, in in the, in the German uh, Bundestag. Absolutely, I've, I've spoken in the parliament. I'm in direct contact with with uh, you know uh, the former vice chancellor uh, Sigmar Gabriel. He's a he's a supporter of of uh, you know free Assange. So uh, I think in Germany, the, the broader public also has really seen through, you know, the deceptive narrative that has been spread by the, by the leading governments in this case. So um, uh, the trial of Julian Assange, which is in two parts. I can, um, can we just go, let's start in the beginning because in, in uh, part one, you have, uh, you got it broken down into five different chapters. Uh, and, and the first chapter is how to miss an elephant. Uh, can you give us an overview of, of that chapter? Yeah, I think you know it's important uh, to to relate to, to readers that I've never been you know a WikiLeaks person or an Assange activist or anybody 
who has been acquainted with the case. So I basically knew as much about this case as pretty much anybody else, which means that I somehow had a bad opinion of Assange because the narrative that has been spread about him was so negative, you know, Assange the rapist, Assange the hacker, Assange the traitor, the spy, the, you know, what have you. Um, and, and this has, has somehow been absorbed by the broader public almost subconsciously. So when I, when I first got approached in my mandate as a special rapporteur on torture for the United Nations, I got approached by his lawyers in December, 2018, he was still at the Ecuadorian embassy. And they asked me to intervene on his behalf because his living conditions had turned inhumane in the Ecuadorian embassy. I kind of brushed that, I still remember that, you know, that little uh, sign that came on my screen, you have a new male, Assange is asking for your protection. And I immediately had this image in front of me of, oh, isn't this this guy with the, you know, the leather jacket and the white hair who is hiding, the rapist who's hiding in an, in an embassy somewhere. And I kind of brushed it aside. It's like, this guy is not going to ma manipulate me. And it actually took me three months when his uh, lawyers came back and said, look, uh, we really have clear indications he, he might be expelled from the embassy soon and then uh, extradited to the US. Would you please look up some pieces of evidence? And I said, well, okay, this is the second time I come along, I, I'll open this evidence. And I started to look at medical evidence, at you know, uh, previous decisions of the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention. And I started realizing that the facts don't add up with the narrative. So something's wrong, either the narrative's wrong or this evidence is wrong, but no one can tell me the truth. I really have to investigate it myself. So I decided I wanted to visit him in prison with two specialized doctors, specialized in examining torture victims. They have done this for 30 years, each of them independently from each other. I wanted not my opinion to count solely, but I wanted to have medical evidence consolidated by two different doctors. And so we went to visit him in London in Belmarsh prison in May, 2019. And clearly he showed all the symptoms that are typical for psychological torture. And, and so at that point, I started realizing something is wrong in this case. Something's really wrong. And I really have to investigate this in, in detail. And why do I start out with the chapter saying, how can you miss an elephant? Well, I missed the elephant in the room. And if I can miss it with my mandate, then you as the reader can miss it. It's normal. You see, I want to- Can I just jump in here? Can you tell us yeah. how you, in that first, uh, How to Miss an Elephant, you say uh, there's a part there where, uh, what is uh, a UN a special rapporteur? Can you just- Yeah. And your mandate. Let's go back to that for just a minute. And, and then no, exactly. You're right, absolutely. Obviously, a, a special rapporteur of the United Nations is appointed by the member states of the United Nations. It's a political appointment. I'm not employed, I'm not a staff member. I'm an appointee, political appointee uh, by the Human Rights Council of the United Nations in Geneva. It's 47 states. And it's a, it's a three times three year mandate where I'm tasked with reporting to UN member states about the compliance of UN member states with the prohibition of torture and ill-treatment throughout the world. And so that's what I do, and I'm an independent, so I cannot receive any instructions even from a secretary general of the United Nations or a president of a country or anybody else. So I'm absolutely independent to take up the cases I want to take up and to investigate them, and then to report to the international community on violations of torture and ill treatment prohibitions. That, that is really, and I do this through 
visiting entire countries and inspecting their prison systems, or, and that's the case with Julian Assange, I intervene on behalf of individuals, about 200 individuals per year, uh, I intervene uh, with their governments in order to ensure their protection. So, I mean, you've been pretty busy. I mean, there's a lot of cases uh, that you have investigated prior uh, to Julian Assange's case. And then after, I mean, right now you still do it. Uh, and I, you must be very busy. And so this thing falls on your lap and you kind of brush it off because I mean, you're a preoccupied individual uh, with all the torture that takes place around right. the world and the bad prison conditions. But there was something that stuck out and I guess they came to you repeatedly and, and you missed the, white, the, 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 uh, the elephant in the room. Uh, but this case or something, because I, at the same time, when you were like missing the elephant, I kind of did too. And, and when I first started uh, doing this uh, Assange uh, Countdown to Freedom uh, series, uh, you know, I, it wasn't met with a lot of uh, great, uh, you know, enthusiasm by, by the public. Uh, but uh, I, I started my own investigation and I continued it because I, I, it, it's so significant, this case, what it symbolizes and what the consequences uh, will be if he's brought to the United States. So let's just go back to you. Uh, so you, you're caught up and you decide, you decide that to investigate uh, this particular uh, uh, you know, case. And so continue where you were. Uh, when you went there in uh, April of uh, 2019. Yeah, exactly. In, in uh, April, I basically I initiated my investigation and in May, I went to visit him. I was just a few weeks after he had been arrested, expelled from the Ecuadorian embassy and arrested by the British authorities. And so we came to that conclusion that he showed all these symptoms of psychological torture. And then I also, I obviously I consulted with the government as well, uh, with the authorities. I, uh, I consulted with uh, his legal team, uh, you know, WikiLeaks employees. I mean, I, I did a very broad investigation, consulting all types of witnesses, uh, soliciting, you know, evidence. Uh, now, what was really interesting here is, I mean, we're working with the United Kingdom. Great Britain, uh, the United States, Sweden, all rule of law countries, democracy, Western democracies, you would expect, well, okay, here, here I am mandated by the United Nations to do what I'm doing. Obviously, when I ask questions, I'll get responses, right? Because we're not dealing with dictatorships, we're dealing with democracies, which presumably will not torture anybody. And I still went to the prison with the presumption of, of course, I'm not going to find torture, you know, because it's Britain, you know, and but then I, he showed all these symptoms, and then I asked my, you know, the doctors, well, how can that be? You know, he's been in, em in an embassy for like for like six years, and I said, well, it, it must have been the living conditions he has been exposed to. But it's, ex you know, these symptoms we're talking about extreme levels of stress, extreme levels of anxiety. Like everybody who's in prison is, is anxious. That's normal. But it's extreme to the extent that he can no longer sleep, that he, he spins you know, in circles mentally, uh, and it actually degrades your nervous system, and you can measure that. And so that's very typical for isolation uh, uh, prisoners who've been exposed to psychological torture. No physical traces, but you have those effects that you can actually measure. And so clearly this must have been a result of what he's been exposed to for, the, for several years before that. And then when you start investigating how the situation has evolved, 
from 2010 when he came out with those big WikiLeaks publications, the Afghan war diary, the Iraq war logs, uh, you know, the, the, the diplomatic cables, uh, the, the, the collateral murder video, all of this was 2010. And as soon as he came out with, uh, with this, a few weeks later, so he put kind of a spotlight on governments and on their misconduct. And the world public was all, all of a sudden questioning, you know, those Western governments. And those Western governments, it took them a couple of weeks to snatch the spotlight out of his hands and turn it around and point it at him and say, oh, by the way, you're suspected of rape. And by the way, you're a hacker and you're a traitor and you're, a, you know, all, all these things that they accused him of. And you can see how that narrative changed and how the headlines change. And all of a sudden, everybody is discussing rape and Assange and, you know, and, and, and is he a traitor? Is he feeding his cat in the embassy? Is he skateboarding in the embassy? And you think, hold on. I mean, skateboarding in the embassy is one thing, but this guy actually exposed war crimes. And, and, and then you, you, you kind of, you know, the, the media has already dropped this with the war crimes. When you go and investigate, you see that none of the crimes that have been uh, exposed by WikiLeaks, and you know, you know, they're not contested. Those facts that they're not—they're not fake news. These are real news. There's real evidence of real crimes. We're talking about murder. We're talking about torture. We're talking about rape. We're talking about corruption, aggressive war. I mean, some of the worst crimes of humanity have been, you know, evidence has been brought by WikiLeaks and none of these crimes have ever been prosecuted. None of these crimes has ever been compensated of the victims, you know, and their families. And these same states now persecute the person who has exposed this. And so this is actually the story. The story of the Assange case is not about Assange, it's about the states trying to protect their impunity for the worst crimes they have committed. You know, you, you lay out uh, in chapter two in part one, uh, uh, WikiLeaks role in society, and you just yeah. enumerated uh, some of their work. Uh, uh, can you uh, uh, give us an overview of that uh, second chapter about WikiLeaks yeah. role in society? Well, very simply put, WikiLeaks has just jumped into the gap that has been left by mainstream media. It really is the role of, the question is, what's the role of media, of the press in society? The role of the media and of the press is not to entertain us, it is to empower us, right? Today, they only entertain us, to distract us, but they're not supposed to do that. They're, they're supposed to focus our attention, to empower us, to, to observe and supervise how government is being conducted, and if something doesn't work or there's misconduct, they're supposed to, pub to inform the public. So the public can now, through democratic means, you know, take you know, the consequences and basically uh, elect other representatives or whatever, or the judiciary can, based on this information, initiate investigations and so on. So the media has a crucial role in society. That's why they're called the fourth estate, right? Right. And and, and the mainstream media has increasingly kind of dropped this uh, hot potato and turns to just entertain people and, and make money with people and you know, advertisements and these types of things, but they're no longer actually empowering the people as, as supposed, they're supposed to do in democracy. So now, because they left this gap, you have uh, 
kind of a rogue actor coming in like WikiLeaks and saying, okay, hold on, we'll inform you, you know, and we'll establish a platform where whistleblowers, which means employees of government or of companies that observe misconduct and that report that misconduct internally, but that those companies and the governments, they're not taking care of that, they're not doing anything about it, then they can actually submit this information anonymously to WikiLeaks and WikiLeaks will publish it and thereby empower the public again to, you know, to have that information and to, to, to take the measures that are necessary to correct that. So that's really the role that they have. They're, they're somehow like, I always say whistleblowers, uh, which are the people that supply WikiLeaks with information, um, they're the alarm system of a democratic society. They're like a, a fire alarm. You call it a safety valve. A safety valve as well. A safety valve, exactly, or a fire alarm. So, you know, the, something's wrong. There is some smoke. You know, there goes the, the whistle blows. It, it, it tells you, hey, there's something wrong. Come and correct it because your house is going to be burning if you don't do anything about it. And so what you see now is governments are starting to persecute whistleblowers and the journalists that publish that information. And thereby, they're basically switching off the alarm system of society, which means that anything that goes wrong is now allowed to fester and to consolidate into criminal structures behind the curtains, which you can no longer get rid of, you see? And that's why they're persecuting these people, because they want to protect those criminal structures. Right. Well, um... I, I, I find it to be widespread right now and, and uh, the persecution of journalists uh, in Australia, in Scotland the other day, uh, with Craig Murray, uh, in this country, uh, it, it, you know, there's a lot of pressure. And, and you talk about the mainstream media, I can't watch it anymore. There's nothing there. You're right, it's just simply entertainment. That's all it is and a distraction. And so, I mean, have they been co-opted, the mainstream media? Are they just uh, willingly going along to get along? Well, I guess you'll have to ask them. I don't know, <laughs> but I am sure that there's some benefit in the in this for them. I guess they're very closely, you know, some of these corporate media organizations are owned by the same people who pay for the election campaigns of the politicians who then will legislate in the interest of those companies. So it's all a conglomerate of, of intertwined interests. So obviously this media corporation is not interested in reporting against their own boss. If their boss is interested in you know, protecting the government that is legislating for their interest. So I think what we have to see is that, that oh, those interests that are intertwined are much more complex uh, in reality than we think. Um, and and much, that they're much close, more closely intertwined than we think. Uh, so it is very important that our democratic uh, structures are protected from those types of conflicts of interest. Uh, but, but we are in, in Western democracies, we're very far advanced in having developed these conflicts of interest. Uh, and, and so the, the separation of powers doesn't really work anymore. Democracy doesn't really work anymore because private interests of very small circles are dominating all of this. Uh, uh, and, and that's also why it's so dangerous for those powerful people if you have an organization like WikiLeaks coming in and saying, okay, we'll give you the truth. Right. Uh, and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Right. right. Absolutely. And, and, and what a godsend uh, they have been. 
uh, and the public is is better off knowing about this stuff, but the governments are not. Uh, now, you, after this, you, you go, you decide to go in there, but you don't know, you wanna see his physical condition, his mental condition, but you haven't made any determination about uh, the charges against him. And so in, in three and four, you talk about the, uh, chapter three and four in part one, the initial uh, contradictions come to light and then, uh, your investigation begins. So can you summarize those two chapters? Yeah, it's, it's basically that I'm showing at in the beginning, you know, that, that I start out with this narrative that everybody believes in. I believed in that as well. So here's the hacker, the raper, rapist, and the, and the spy, and, and, and the narcissist, and so on. And then I start realizing that, well, already those rape allegations, something doesn't add up. You know, you see uh, because I, I speak Swedish, uh, and so I can actually read those original police protocols and everything, and I see, well, there's something wrong here. You know, everybody claims that he tried to evade justice, but all the evidence I see is Julian Assange trying to get a chance to give evidence, and the authorities trying to avoid it. And, uh, and, and, and so, uh, and I see then, then, then he gets, you know, arrested by the British, and I can see the the court proceedings, I mean, he, he gets insulted by a judge, you know, without him giving any reason for that. He's not, you know, saying anything in the whole hearing, except I, I, I plead not guilty. And the judge insults him that he's a narcissist and, uh, and, and, and he gets like sentenced for, for, for a bail violation in, in a 15 minute hearing that he wasn't allowed to prepare with his lawyer. He doesn't get the legal documents. He's then, uh, imprisoned in Belmarsh prison, exposed to several very complex legal proceedings, among others, obviously, the, the US extradition proceeding. But he doesn't get, get enough access to his lawyers to be able to actually prepare that case. I mean, it's, it's, he's being held in solitary confinement for most of the time in, in Belmarsh, although he's, he's not serving a sentence. I mean, he is only there for preventative purposes. So to ensure his presence in case he should be extradited to the United States, but he's actually a free man. He should be living at home with his family, his kids, he should be working. Uh, uh, you know, uh, he should be preparing his defense with his lawyers freely, but they lock him up in solitary confinement in a high security prison uh, with no legal justification. So, Yes, and we'll get into the Swedish investigation uh, after we take a break. But before we get there, I, I want you uh, to uh, explain uh, in, in the chapter five of part A, part one, uh, you, it's called the crossing the Rubicon. Uh, go yeah. into that because you crossed the Rubicon after doing this initial investigation and you became, as, as a skeptic, you be, became convinced. Right. I, it, well, I, I'd say that it really starts out with this perspective I had on Assange that was entirely negative, that you know, this could never be torture or treatment. And then I see step by step, I start kind of scratching the surface of this case. I see more and more contradictions coming up, more and more dirt coming up, more you know, deliberate arbitrariness, deliberate violations of his procedural rights, uh, you know, uh, his, you know, property is being stolen, he's, he's being surveilled illegally, all of this comes up. And in, in, in the end, I intervened with those governments. And 
I, I knew that what I was going to say to these governments, um, nobody's going to believe me because everybody is convinced that he is this hacker and rapist and spy and, and that he's, you know, that he, he, he is evading justice. But the, the reality is a completely different one. And that was really something that, that I felt I have to cross the Rubicon, basically, when I, when I confront states with the truth of this case. Um, there is no turning back. You know, then I, I really have to, myself, also confront them with the whole truth of the case and nothing but the truth. But I also have to insist, because I knew I was getting into a very politicized case. I, I sensed that there are enormous political interests involved in suppressing the truth here. I, I have to admit, I feared to a certain extent for my own security. I feared, you know, what's going to happen to my, to my profession, to my career, to my family, uh, because I felt that all those, this evidence I have seen, people don't know about that. And government certainly don't want to know the public to know about that. That's also a reason I put it in a book so it's out there. It's no longer just with me. I want to be in the public knowledge. Uh, so, so it's also a way of protecting myself. Well, you, you, you go to these governments and they're not interested. They turn a deaf ear. And uh, in this uh, crossing the Rubicon part, uh, the second uh, part of that, uh, you say going public. So you went public, but you went to the governments first they're not interested, and then you decide you had to go public. And I know there are repercussions, uh, as you just uh, said, uh, you know, both from governments and, and, and from the institutions that you work, like in Glasgow, uh, are probably got a lot of pressure uh, to like get, I'm sure the UN too, I'm sure they're getting pressure, but you decide to go public. And that's that ends uh, part uh, one, uh, chapter yes, five. I, I just realized, look, Right, I realized there's no free lunch in life, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's a truism, but whatever I do, there's going to be a price to it. If I speak out, there's going to be a price to pay for that. If I keep silent, there's going to be a price to pay for that as well. And that's important to know, it's, you know, because what, when I just felt I have to be able to look at myself in the mirror every day and to be able to live with what I see, because that's the only guy I can't escape from for the rest of my life, of my life. And I felt that I'm, you know, for me it was clear. I'd rather pay the price for speaking out than the the price for for keeping silent. So, so you you went public and that, yeah. that really exploded, and uh, people saw that. They said, "Thank God for Niels Melzer coming out." because uh, you gave a lot of credibility to the cause. And um, I know you risked, you, you took a lot of risks, and, uh, but going public, uh, what, what was the initial backlash? And then we'll take a break after you tell us about the initial backlash for you. Well, I think it, it initially, not, not that much. I think states were just surprised that they didn't expect me to take such a clear position. But then they also expected that that was it, you know, okay, he said his thing. So now we're going to ignore him. And then, you know, that's it. That's going to be the, you know, there's no, there's not going to be any, any more noise about this because he has other things to do. And so I, I think it's more like the second series of letters that I sent when I really signaled, look, I'm not going to drop this one because this is too important in terms of the case for Julian Assange himself, but also for what it means for all of us. 
And right. I think that's what we should be discussing as well. Yeah. yeah well, that's, I, I think maybe that's what drives me. I've been doing this for five years. I've done probably 120 episodes of Assange Countdown to Freedom. You've been on five times uh, and always have something galvanizing to say. Uh, why don't we take a quick break here? Uh, we're talking with uh, Professor Dr. Nils Melzer, uh, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture here on uh, the Progressive Radio Network. I'm Randy Credico. We're just going to take a quick break with a musical piece by Nils Melzer. Okay, uh, that was another piece by UN Rapporteur on Torture, our special guest today here on Progressive Radio Network, uh, Randy Credico live on the fly, uh, continuing our series, Assange Countdown to Freedom. Um, that was a very nice piece. Is there a name for that one, Nils? Actually, yeah, that's, that's, it's called Ella Nine because it's Elena, my daughter, and when she turned nine, uh, it is for her birthday. <laughs> I see. I wrote it for her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very nicely done. You, you, you are impressive. Uh, we're talking with Nils Melzer, uh, the special rapporteur on torture, the UN special rapporteur on torture. Uh, his uh, new blockbuster book, The Trial of Julian Assange, which uh, was, a, I mean, it was a big hit in Germany. Uh, it was a bestseller. Uh, were you surprised? Uh, not really, uh, because I, the, the story is absolutely relevant. And in Germany, we've had, you know, about a year before that, we started having a lot of impact with interviews. So we, we realized the public was, was ready for, for the story, you know, because I think that's really uh, important because the public generally is, has been misled about this. They're being deceived. You see, and I just want to say that every, anybody who watches this, if you, you know, if I tell you you've been deceived about Assange and you think you've not been deceived, that's normal because, you know, otherwise it wouldn't be deception, right? If you know that you're being deceived, it's no longer deception. And I'm not ridiculing anything. It was the same with me. I was deceived and I was absolutely convinced I wasn't deceived, you know, being deceived. It, it, it's normal. Uh, and, and so I think we have to realize the power that mainstream media has and that governments have in creating narratives and spreading them and, 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 and dominating you know, public opinion, that's, that's absolute, that was some, something very scary for me to see in this case. Uh, because if they can do it in this case, they can do it on anything else. But it also means that our reality, our perception of reality is extremely strongly manipulated by governments. Well, I, I must say uh, that it, it, it worked. Uh, you see uh, a lot of people who just don't care in this country. Uh, there's not a mass movement for Assange. And it's because of the smear jobs uh, that organize smear jobs in, in, in Sweden and the UK and the US and Australia have all been complicit. 
uh, in this process. And uh, it all begins, and this is in uh, uh, part two, uh, in chapter one, the, uh, the uh, Swedish investigation, uh, the uh, judicial prosecution uh, or persecution. Uh, tell us about that, uh, yeah. part uh, two, uh, chapter yeah. one. I think it's important to understand the structure of the book is really the first part, as you said, the introduction kind of opens up and shows how I started with my own prejudice and how I kind of piece by piece uh, started scratching the surface and realizing, oh, there's much more to this. I need to investigate this. And then in the second part, I actually lay out my investigation. It's called an anatomy of a persecution where I basically show that the Swedish, the British, the American, and the Ecuadorian dimension of his persecution. And I bring all the evidence uh, piece by piece. And I think in Sweden, what's really important is that, uh, you know, my job is not to find out what happened between those women and, and Assange. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a prosecutor, but uh, to make very clear, you know, the Swedish prosecutors have invested, you know, millions and a decade to try to find evidence to, uh, to indict him for, for the rape allegations. And they have not been able to find even enough evidence to indict him, not to convict him, even to indict him formally. So basically they had nothing from the beginning. And what we can see in this case um, is that the authorities didn't care from the beginning about those women or about the truth. They, they, they cared about the headline. They, want, they pushed that headline out very, very quickly against the will of those women who never claimed that they had been raped when they went to the police with a completely different purpose. And then this was forced by the government's uh, the authorities, the police authority, the prosecutor. For the next years, they, they pushed very aggressively this public narrative of Assange being a fugitive rape suspect, but they suppressed the truth, which is that Assange systematically tried to testify through his lawyers, he, you know, they called the prosecutor. He stayed, he stayed one month longer in Sweden than originally planned because he wanted to testify. He actually did testify once uh, after a few days already at the police. And when they realized that they really didn't have any evidence, they made sure not to question him again. Because once they find out they don't have evidence, well, they have to basically acquit him and drop the case and say, well, he's innocent. They didn't want to say that. So they waited until he left Sweden and he left only after he asked for authorization. Very important, he didn't flee. He asked the prosecutor, can I leave? The prosecutor says, yes, you can leave. Two weeks later he leaves and that very day he leaves, she issues an arrest warrant because he is, uh, he's, he's fleeing the country, trying to evade justice, which is absolutely not true. And then so, he goes to London and he offers to come back to Sweden. He offers a date 10 days later and the prosecutor says, no, you, you know, I, can't, I have to refuse that date, that's too late. And, you know, so, so she, she, she did everything she could, this prosecutor, to prevent him from actually testifying. He said, well, if I can't come to Sweden, well, then I'm, I'll, 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 I'll testify, you know, through video call or through the phone. And because there is a, a mutual legal assistance agreement between this the Swedes and the UK, which makes that possible. It's done all the time, but she refused it in his case. And, and then she said, he, now you have to come back to Sweden. And at that point, he suspected 
that there was a intention to then extradite him onwards to the United States. And he said, okay, I'll come to Sweden. And I've talked to his lawyers. They confirmed to me that they personally informed the Swedish government that Assange is prepared to come back, but please give him a guarantee. You will not send him onward to the United States. And Sweden always refused to do that and without any decent explanation. So he was absolutely justified to be worried. And I can confirm as someone who has worked in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, these types of assurances of guarantees are given all the time. So if a state doesn't give those guarantees, it means they have some intentions. I mean, that's absolutely clear. So this is just a Swedish dimension where you see that a, a narrative of the fugitive rape suspect has been perpetuated and you know, pushed aggressively without giving him a chance to to actually you know, give evidence and give his, his own view of, of what happened. And so with this, obviously they undermined the public support for him because everybody saw him now as a rapist. Right. So, they, so that was the purpose of this, you see? Yes, it, it does seem like that's the, that, well, of course that was the purpose of it. So he gets out, the, the air is full of uh, poisonous uh, elements and uh, uh, people are looking at that and it's like, all right, we'll let you go. We'll put out this uh, European arrest warrant. He's in London uh, and he does get arrested. And uh, at that point, he decides uh, to uh, go into the Ecuadorian embassy because he knows the die is cast. Is that what you, um, um, you know, you know, garnered yeah. out of all this? Obviously, I mean, you know, he, he asked the UK for guarantees, he asked the Swedes for guarantees, and the guarantees were not, you know, not to be prosecuted for rape allegations, because, you know, he said, I have no problem giving evidence. I mean, it's not, it's not an issue. I just don't want to be sent to the US because there I know what's waiting for me. Yeah. He has seen all those trials at the espionage courts in Alexandria. He knows that nobody has ever been acquitted there, that everything is behind closed doors, you know, that, that the defense doesn't have access to evidence. I mean, it's a state security trial uh, that has nothing to do with, you know, democratic systems and the rule of law. And so he, he knew that in a, in a court case like this, he cannot possibly be acquitted. And, and being accused of espionage in you know, 18 counts uh, with 175 years of prison waiting for him in, in a supermax in the US, that's basically being you know, buried alive for the, for the rest of your, of your life. So clearly he didn't want to go to the, to the US with a, and he was justified. And in fact, this January, the British judge refused his extradition precisely on the grounds that it would be oppressive and inhumane because of the inhumane detention conditions in the US. So she actually confirmed that he was right to seek asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy because that was the only reason he went to the Ecuadorian embassy for. He said that in his, in his application, he said, I'm going to Sweden as soon as they, get, they guarantee not to send me to the US. And he said in his application, I seek protection from the United States. And the British judge herself basically confirmed that he was right in doing that. Well, you know, I have visited a lot of prisons over the last 20 years, hundreds of prison visits, and I can confirm personally that the conditions are really atrocious. And uh, there are a lot of suicides in U.S. prisons. And he was justified in uh, doing what he did going to that Ecuadorian embassy. But, you know, they, they kept it going. 
the, uh, the Crown Prosecutor Services kept this going. They were complicit. In fact, they're the ones who initiated this with the Swedish government. Talk about that, how they kept this thing yeah. going for the next what, seven years. Yeah, that was, that was really strange. That, that was also some of the pieces of evidence which showed me that clearly something bigger is going on here. So um, as soon as he's, he sought asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy, the Swedes basically shortly thereafter, they wanted to drop the case. They said, well, there's no point in, you know, extraditing him or, you know, he's going to stay in that embassy anyway. So they wanted to drop it. And then you can see there's email correspondence with the British who have no stakes in the Swedish case because the women are not British. He is not, Assange is not British. It didn't happen in Britain. So why would they care, right? I mean, certainly, yes, they want to help be helpful in, in prosecuting you know, a suspect, but if the Swedes are prepared to drop the case, well, all the better for Britain, actually. So they have a, you know, one problem less, but no, you can see they send an email to the prosecutor say, you know, don't you dare get cold feet. By basically insisting that they should continue with this case. And, and the prosecutor then kind of apologizes to the, the British prosecutor and says, well, you know, I'm sorry if I ruined your weekend. And, and I think like, what? What's going on here? You know, what, why are the British, you know, when there is smoke, there is fire somewhere. So if the British are so invested in this case, but there is no British dimension to this case, well, then we know it's not about that Swedish case. It's about something else where the British have a big stick. And that's obviously in their alliance with the US and the whole secrecy policy. That's where they are extremely invested. So this is what this is about. Because as soon, mind, mind you, as soon as Assange seeks uh, um, uh, asylum in the embassy, the British foreign minister, William Hague, threatens Ecuador, we will invade your embassy, we'll raid your embassy and arrest him there which would be a grave violation of international diplomatic immunity, right? You can't just raid a foreign country's embassy. The only reason to do that, if there's a hostage taking or terrorist attack or something like this to protect that embassy, you will invade it with your special forces to protect the staff, you know? But you will not against the will of, of the state that has the embassy, you can, it's, it's, it's sovereign territory, you cannot invade it. So the British were prepared to invade a foreign embassy in London because there is a suspect who is, has already testified in the case in Sweden, who has been prepared to testify personally in Sweden if they only give this guarantee or to testify anytime by video link. And, and for, he's not even indicted. He's not violent, he's not dangerous. No country in their right mind would invade an embassy for something like that. Clearly, it's about something else. It's not about the Swedish case. It's about setting a precedent that you cannot have, you cannot expose our secrets, the US secrets, the British secrets, and this whole Western alliance. You cannot expose our dirty laundry. Um, and, you know, we will set an example and deter other journalists so they know this is what's going to happen to you if you ever dare doing that. Well, you know, so the Swedes end up dropping the case. They close it, uh, nothing there. Uh, and, but the Brits are still intent on extracting him out of there. His only charge is bail jumping. 
that's it. So they, they're continuing their surveillance by UC Global, uh, probably um, at the direction of the CIA. Uh, we know Sheldon Adelson was involved, uh, who's close with Pompeo, uh, but they continue you know, wanting to get in there and get him out, even though he's, he's only charged with bail jumping at this point. Uh, uh, but, um, and they finally go in. What was your reaction uh, when they, uh, well, at that point, you still were not convinced, but, um, but when you saw that, the way he was dragged out of there, looking back, uh, what are your thoughts about uh, oh. that? You know, it was, a, it was in the last days of March 2019 when his lawyers came back to me and decided to, to release a press release on the 5th of April. So this is, you know, six days before he was expelled from the embassy. And I called on the UK and on Ecuador not to expel him and in the UK not to arrest him and certainly not to send him to the US. I said, you know, freeze the situation. I'm coming to London. I want to investigate the situation while he is still in the embassy. That was the 5th of April on Friday evening. Uh, I sent out the letters on Monday morning, the 8th of April, to make sure I could visit him on the 25th of April in the Ecuadorian embassy. That was the 8th. The 10th of April, which is two days later and one day before his expulsion, the British ambassador writes a letter to me saying, uh, you know, this, uh, this whole story about his expulsion is completely hypothetical. Uh, we cannot discuss this with you. Obviously, you can visit him in the embassy whenever you want, but you know we cannot discuss it with U.S. British authorities. Within 24 hours, the British, the same British authorities, arrested him, and clearly they knew about this before because we know now from the the diary in the thick of Alan Duncan, who was who was just published in this book. I think in the thick of it, it's called his biography. Alan Duncan was the minister in charge for that operation, Operation Pelican, which was his arrest in the embassy. And this had been planned already for the 9th of January, 2019. So this had been planned for months ahead. But a day before the British authorities basically lied to me that this is completely hypothetical. And I'm not, you know, some, you know, average journalist, I'm a mandated UN mandate holder. I'm supposed to, be able to have a privileged communication with the governments. So they clearly lied to me that within 24 hours he was expelled. And when I saw that, I said, there's something wrong. I mean, I officially asked him to freeze this. He's been there for almost seven years. They can wait for another 10 days. That's not the problem. So if they have to weasel him out so quickly, it's because I have announced that I want to investigate it. They want to get him out before I come to London. So to have a you know, have facts on the ground before I can come and basically stop it, you see? And so I, I'm convinced that I actually accelerated the process by announcing my visit. Wow. But then I, I turned suspicious. I said, well, if, if this is how you're dealing with me, then something must be really fishy in this case. Well, definitely it's a rotten fish. Um, so um, now, you know, as you pointed out, uh, the judge uh, decided not to send him back based on the prison conditions in the U.S. and his mental state. Uh, and the U.S. has appealed that ruling. Yeah. Uh, talk about that, because I know uh, there's a hearing coming up in, in the next month. Uh, how you feel about that and, and what do you foresee? 
Look, I think we have to be very realistic. I said immediately after that decision in January, this is a trap. Uh, because you see, uh, the, the judge confirmed the whole US indictment. She said, all of this is punishable. It's not a political offense. There is no press freedom protections. So basically she set a precedent case that applies to any other journalist, including yourself, Randy, you know, that with, if ever you should get the idea to do what Julian Assange has done, this is what's gonna happen to you. You're gonna be decriminalized and you've been extradited to the UK or to the US wherever you are in the world, whatever is your nationality, whatever uh, the secret is, and whatever the public interest may be in your publication, it's absolutely irrelevant. Uh, we have criminalized you. That was the purpose. So they set that precedent, but they didn't extradite him. Now, if you bear with me as a lawyer, a couple of sentences on this, it's very important because both parties knew whatever the first court decides, the other side will appeal it to the next level. In any case, whatever they decide, the other, you know, the ones that don't benefit from it, they will appeal to the next court. So, but so the, the US wanted for them to appeal. So they actually benefited from that because had she extradited the, the, the Assange to the US, Assange's lawyers would have appealed the whole decision, including the precedent case to the, to the high court. Now, because they confirmed the precedent case of criminalizing journalism, but not extradite him, Assange will not appeal because he doesn't want to be extradited. So the US will now appeal, but they will only appeal one single question, not the criminalization of journalism, obviously, because they want to keep this in place. They only appeal the prison conditions question. And that is something that they can easily control because they can just guarantee, they can make guarantees Oh yeah, but in his case, we will treat him better. Here are our guarantees. So now the high court has no reason not to extradite, you see? It's something that they, the US has completely in their control what prison conditions they will offer. They can offer anything and the British will have to believe it. So that's why it, it, that was predictable and precisely that happened. So the US now made guarantees at the appeal stage that they will not uh, uh, place him in the ADX Florence, Colorado supermax, and that they will not subject him to special administrative measures, which is this very strict detention regime. But now the thing is this, yes, ADX Florence is one thing, but it's one of dozens of supermax prisons. So if he's not placed there, they can place him in any other supermax prison. And special administrative measures is not the only solitary confinement regime they have. There's only about 50 people in the US affected by special administrative measures. But there are about, Randy, there are 80,000 detainees at any given day in the US are in solitary confinement, 80,000. So only 50 of them are in the special administrative measures regime. I mean, you have plenty of other regimes called, you know, I don't know, administrative segregation and you know, preventative detention or whatever, all they are is complete isolation. So all of this to say the guarantees, they look nice on paper, but they're very, very easy to circumvent for the US. And the third guarantee I want to mention here is that they guarantee that uh, Assange could serve his sentence in Australia, which sounds great, but it only applies once all of the legal remedies have been exhausted in the US. Now, you know that this can last for 10 to 20 years in the US until you get up to the Supreme Court. So it's again up to the government, they can procrastinate this for 20 years, 
and then send him to Australia. But then by then he will be 70 years old and have spent 20 years in complete solitary confinement. Well, they, so in short, in short, those guarantees are worthless. Yes. Well, they've really dragged this out. And I guess uh, that's the point. They've kept them silent. Uh, WikiLeaks is not getting the kind of uh, material they would normally get at this point. I think people, there is a chill out there. They've kept him quiet. And uh, this, this is very ominous, uh, what you just laid out there, uh, because um, this is not a slam dunk for Assange, obviously. Right. Uh, and it, it could only uh, it, I mean, do you think he may win in this? Uh, uh, I mean, the, the judges have it in their hands. The high court in the UK traditionally is much more independent than the first instance court. So uh, they can. Uh, but the question is, you know, in the previous extradition case, when he was supposed to be extradited to Sweden, both the High Court and the Supreme Court, they bent over backwards to, to, to allow this extradition, although it was clearly unlawful. So, you know, I suspect it will be the same in this case. Um, the only thing that I'm certain about that the, uh, or I hope at least, that the Strasbourg Court of Human Rights will certainly refuse his extradition. So, but I think that the, I think the British and the US authorities are not quite sure whether they can actually push this through the judiciary. That's why they're procrastinating every single step to the maximum, right? Right. Uh, we've been talking to Nils Melzer. Uh, this has gone by so quickly. I can't believe it how fast it's gone by. There's so much more. Uh, you're going to have to come back when this book is actually out. And it's called The uh, Trial of uh, Julian Assange, A Story of Persecution by Nils Melzer. Uh, and I look forward uh, to reading this book in full, not just an introduction. Uh, thank you, Niels Melzer, um, for joining us again. I'm Randy Credico. Uh, this has been a special Live on the Fly Assange Countdown to Freedom episode uh, here at the Progressive Radio Network. We're gonna go out with another piece. This is not an original, it's an original by Beethoven, but it's played <laughs> by Niels Melzer, Moonlight Sonata, and we'll see you next Monday at 10 a.m. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to you, Randy. Thank you.